Welcome to Sabbath School for May 16, 2020. We have yet again another fantastic study, how to interpret scripture. We're going to get into a really good in-depth discussion in just a few minutes, but as always, we need to begin with our mission focus. Our global mission feature today is another one of our mission spotlights, this time coming to us from Norway. Check it out. In the 1880s, Ellen White visited Oslo, Norway, and preached at the Bethel Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today, Oslo is one of Europe's most expensive cities, although it ranks high on quality of life. It's the center of the Norwegian economy and government. The Bethel Church still operates at a prime location in the heart of the city. On Sabbath, you'll find a melting pot of cultures forming Sabbath school classes and then coming together for the main service. In this church, youth are a high priority. In 2017, a portion of your 13th Sabbath offering started a renovation project for a space specifically for youth outreach. The youth group in Oslo is very active and inclusive. Today, Alex and Marielle are asking church members to spread the word about upcoming events to any young person they know. There are universities scattered throughout Oslo, with many students hoping to make new friends. This group happily welcomes newcomers into the close-knit community. Events are scheduled throughout the week for the youth to connect with each other outside of church, too. I love the cabin trips that we have, <laughs> going skiing and hanging out together, because then you get to have like a lot of uh, deep conversations together, too, with friends that you normally don't get the possibility to uh, and normal settings. I'm a very social being. I need people. <laughs> and uh, just a bunch of great guys and girls. Good people to hang around with. On this Sabbath, they've planned a picnic in the park after church where they can socialize and get to know each other. For me, I don't always think about it as much as uh, it bring, you know, the youth group, more as uh, yeah, it's my friends. We want to go hang out and then we can just like make sort of make an arrangement and get together. Each Sabbath afternoon, the youth group from the Bethel Church joins young Adventists and their friends from all over Oslo for conversation, testimonies, and music. This gives them another opportunity to recharge spiritually and socially. Although this larger community benefits from spending time together, there are many in Oslo who don't know Jesus. The challenges of working in such a large urban area can be discouraging. Norway is a very secular country, so uh, of course it makes it more difficult for mission workers telling people about the gospel because everyone has sort of heard about it and they have, in, in a way, made their own opinion about it. So it makes it very difficult to show them how good it really is. The young people in Oslo ask Adventists around the world to join them in prayer. We need prayer for trying to have the best kind of environment for people to get more involved with God and each other. So pray for some spiritual guidance, help us to be more or better at meeting people and uh, show others that we are Christians. Please pray for this group in Norway and thank you for your support 
of the 13th Sabbath offering that is helping this group reach more young people. Now, isn't it exciting to see how God is using, even in some difficult places, young people for His glory and ministry? And, you know, the same commission that tells us to go to the whole world also gives us our part of the world right here in the Michigan Conference to go win for Christ. And our conference or local focus of mission this week is going to be about Camp Asabel and the ministry that happens there. And to help us with that, we have a special technological feature this week. We have a Zoom meeting. So we're going to pull in Elder Ken Mitchiff into the program right now. Put this screen up. There he is. Let me make sure I push record so we're getting this right. All right. Brother Mitchiff, how are you today? I'm doing really good, Cameron. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Now, to make sure that all of our uh, audience recognizes that we record this before the Sabbath day, so we're not talking to you on Sabbath morning, but we're actually talking earlier in the week. And you would typically, if you're any other guest, would be in our hot seat today, but you were doing this via Zoom because where are you right now? I'm at Camp Asable in my office. In your office at Camp Asable. Well, that looks very, very comfortable and nice. But, um, I, I, speaking of comfortable and nice at Campus Abel right now, um, this must be just the sweet time for you. Nothing's really happening, right? You're just kind of relaxing up there and taking it easy. What's happening? Well, we're homesick for people. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're obeying by we're obeying the stay-at-home order, and we're doing everything we can to uh, remodel and fix and repair. And we've got a lot of things that we're doing to to get ready for the campers when they do come. Okay, so you're, let's bring that up then. You're anticipating that campers will come. And I know that right now we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of uncertainty day by day, even almost hour by hour about restrictions lifting and adjustments that are being made. But as it stands now, what is the plan for camp this summer? At the present, we've moved our camps to July and um, we're willing to move those again if the restrictions uh, make it where we need to do that. We've canceled our, our family camps, um, but we want to see kids be able to come here and learn of Jesus and put their faith and their trust in, in Jesus. And, you know, he's, you've been studying the Sabbath school lessons. I've been enjoying uh, watching you and Mark so much. Uh, the Bible is the foundation. Mm. And it's the anchor, and we can trust God's Word. And that's what we want to help our kids know. That's what our theme is, is, is to get kids grounded in, our, in the Bible. Mm. Further, further in, further up, that's our theme. Amen. So what I hear you saying is why you'd love to have family camps and other, you know, broader things. You're going to, if you have to cut things, you're going to make sure that the kids are, have, have the highest priority in that plan. They have the highest priority, but our thoughts are thinking of families that have not had camp meeting and have had to cancel camps. We have a, a, a Northwoods with 1,400 campsites, or for, uh, places for 1,400 people, mm-hmm. about 70-some campsites. And we're, we're thinking about opening that up all summer long for families to be able to come and, and just do it on a donation basis. And we'll be able to provide uh, canoeing down the Asabo River, kayaking, uh, horses. We have a store here where you can get your um, veggie food and, 
And we've got a, a beautiful environment where I think that we can keep the guidelines and keep people safe, and yet people in family groups could come even while there is kids' camp. Wow. Okay. So you're looking you're looking outside the box a little bit about how to like use the facility in ways that it hasn't quite been used yet, but adapting to the current situation. That's correct. Yes, and we're excited about that because. We love the constituents that come here. For years, this, this camp has been serving people since 1947. Mm-hmm. And we have um, so much to offer uh, for people uh, to be able to come and hear God's voice, to turn off the, the laptop, to turn off the, the iPhone and the iPads, and, and to just, just to be able to walk in nature, to be able to go around the boardwalk and to to sit and and just to be able to ponder the truths that God has given us in his word mm. and to see that you know that in the atmosphere of the creator's handiwork mm. um, we just we really we really see lives changed at Camp Asabel. Uh, kids give their lives to Jesus by the hundreds mm. um, families that come and say you know pastor Ken um, this is we're going to give this week a try. We're going to get a divorce if this doesn't work. Ooh. And we see um, families come together. It doesn't always work, but f- for the most part, we see families come together and say, we've rediscovered our love for each other. We've rediscovered God's love for me. Um, we want to renew our commitment to him. We've seen um, miracles take place here at Campus Owl, and I speak for the staff. That's what really it, it's what it's about. Mm-hmm. We're we're a nonprofit. We're not here to make money. We're here to provide service to all the constituents. And guys, there are so many things that we could do for um, the constituents of conference that are not being done. If, if we could only um, brainstorm with us, there's many things that we could do to help our constituents uh, be in this environment. All right, let's pick up on something there. You said uh, that there's there's ways that you would like to see Campus Abel be used. Because I can tell you, let me just, I'm guessing there are people that have a picture of Campus Abel that it's, the, it's right there on the lake, it's got the cafeteria and the buildings, and it's used for summer camp for kids and weekend retreats for different department things. Is there more than that typical mold that you would like to see Campus Abel be viewed as and used for as a resource? Yes, there is, and I'm glad that you brought that up. <laughs> um, you know, families could come during the week. We have cabins that are not being utilized. Mm. We have a fort. We have a wagon train, the, the Asabo River where there's canoes and kayaks. We, we have leaderships. You could, you know, if you're a department head, maybe you're the Sabbath superintendent, mm-hmm. bring your teachers up here. You know, it'll be well worth that time that you can cast vision. You know, really, there's no limit um, unless it's our imaginations. Mm. There's so much here to glean from. And uh, I really invite you guys to to come up as families, as as pastors, teachers, as leaders that want to develop um, your, you know, your team. Amen. So... I think that what I'm taking away from this, and I know we need to go for time, is that Camp Asabel is not just a location. 
and a summer program and some weekend events, but there's really a, a wealth of resources there that we're really not tapping into. And maybe one of the lessons we can take away from this COVID crisis is we need to think a little bit more creatively about how to use what's already on hand that the Lord has provided. Does that sound about right? Yes, you're spot on. Amen. Well, thank you, Elder Mitchell, for the work that you're doing at Camp Asable and for the whole Michigan conference through that ministry. If people wanted to get in contact, if they've got new ideas of how camp can be a ministry and resource for them, how do they get a hold of you? Where do they go? The website, campasable.org. And our phone number is 989-348-5491. Call us anytime. We'll brainstorm with you. Um, you're not bothering us. We're here to serve. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being part of our Sabbath school this week, and God bless you up at camp. God bless you, and thanks. Praise the Lord for such wonderful resources like Camp Asaba, where as a conference church family, we can congregate, we can assemble, we can train, and as he said, we can kind of take a time out and be with God and listen to his voice. But more than just corporate settings, we still have to remember that mission is personal. And for this week's personal ministries feature, here's another testimony of work that the Lord is doing through lives of dedicated church members. My name's Joy Corliss. A couple years ago, I took an evangelism class in Kalamazoo. And during that class, we were challenged to ask for Bible studies. My husband, to be actually encouraged me to ask my youngest son. So I called him up and I said, Jason, how would you like to do a Bible study? I was encouraged to do Bible studies and they told me that I could practice on someone. So I was wondering if I could practice with you. And he said, yes. But then life got crazy. I got married. It took a couple months to be able to arrange this. So I called him back and I said, Jason, are you still interested? Can I still practice on you? And he said, yes, um, sure, that'll be okay. And I said, how about asking Tammy, his wife, if she would want to join us? He said, well, I don't know, but when she gets home from work, I'll ask her. So a couple hours later, he called me and she said, yes, she wanted to do Bible studies too. We made arrangements like immediately. By the next week, I was coming down to their house to be able to do Bible studies. I was not going to let that pass. The first Bible study we did, they were so hungry that I was there for hours and they just asked questions. And it was just so amazing that it just took me to ask them. And a couple weeks into it, my oldest son walked in the door, asked us what we were doing. And so I told him the same thing. I'm practicing doing these Bible studies. Do you want to join us? And he said, yes. And a couple weeks later, um, my grandson's girlfriend started to join us. So we, we actually studied with four people. But I am so excited because now I have three of my children that are baptized. It was to try to help us to be able to get Bible studies and um, Pastor Mark had said that he was challenged by this. And so I thought, well, you know, I could ask if somebody would just be willing to let me practice on them, seeing as that I had never done a personal Bible study before. So that was so easy. Um, it breaks, I felt like it broke down some barriers. Um, I wasn't just coming at them. I was just asking for them to do something for me. At first, I would find somebody that 
you knew quite well because if you've already developed that relationship with them, they're more apt to do something as a favor for you. And I believe that's what happened with my son. In fact, it was um, strange because I had taken my children to church um, their whole life. And when I asked him about what what really made him make that decision, he said, Mom, he says, I didn't even believe there was a God before you did that Bible study with me. Um, so we never know where people are, but um, if we just ask them to help us, to do, to do us a favor, I think it breaks down a wall. No training, it was like a no-brainer. It was so easy, because Bible studies are so easy. You just study together with them. I mean, you have the Bible study, you look up the scriptures, and you read the Bible study. There was, you don't need any training to do a Bible study. It was very, very easy. All right, well, mission aside, we got to dive into the message. And again, we're in our second quarter of the year looking at how to interpret Scripture. And Pastor Howard, as you so ably reminded us, uh, convictingly, I believe so, that we need not just read the memory verse, we need That's to right. like know the memory verse, be able <laughs> to say the memory verse. Bring us up to speed. What did we lay out last well, week? Well, last week we gave a challenge to uh, our viewers to actually memorize the memory verse and even invited you to send in a version of your recitation of that memory verse. Mm -hmm. And we had some responses. We did have some responses. I'd like to see more sure. and I'm sure they're forthcoming. <laughs> we take by faith that those are on the way. They're in the mail as it were. Um, but one of the things that came in was an, it was an well, let's just put it up on the screen right now. This is from Pastor Jacob Gibbs. He's the right. pastor of the Cedar Lake Church, and his wife, Emily, is, is a teacher at Great Lakes Academy. That's right. And uh, he is artistic by nature, and he has this beautiful ability to, like, take words and put them into visuals. Yes. And uh, as you can see there, he did a great job. Now, Pastor Howard, what, what, you, you had a thought well, about that. Well, I was just saying, knowing the fine young man that Jake Gibbs is, <laughs> I know that he did this from memory. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't looking at the text and, and, and doing it. But then you had said, or perhaps... Yes, exactly. But there's the other author. What if he did this as an aid so that as he looked at it, it would deepen his memory so that he started and, as by looking at it. our viewers look at it. Exactly. And in fact, Pastor Gibbs, and I don't want to hold him to this because it was a very kind offer, but he has offered to make one of those artistic interpretations of the memory verse for us each week going time forward. time permits. Exactly. So, um, say it again. If time permits. Yeah, yeah. like I said, but I don't want to hold it to him. We don't know how long this is going to go, but uh, as he's able, we'll take those in and share them with you either right here in our Sabbath School program or at michigansspm.org, our Sabbath yeah. School and Personal Ministries uh, web home. So thank you, Pastor Gibbs, for that. And also for those who did recite them in reverse, we want to thank you for those submissions as well. And here's a sample of this week's memory verse. Today's Sabbath School memory verse is Deuteronomy 3126, and we are the Castanon family, and we put it to memory. Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Deuteronomy 3126. So we've taken care of our memory verse. We have, of course, already had our mission review. 
Before we get into the lesson study itself, however, we always need to begin with a word of prayer. Mm. Pastor Howard, you mind praying for us? Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your multiple blessings to us, Lord. All of them are undeserved and uh, they're ours only through Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for giving us the gift of your son. Now, Lord, uh, that we may live in a way that brings honor and glory to his name and upbuilds his kingdom. I pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance in our study. Give us understanding in your word this morning and the principles of interpreting your word that we may rightly divide the word of truth but we ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're on lesson seven of yes. our second quarter and the title of this week's lesson is Language, Text, and Context. Yes. And those are three kind of loaded terms. We might have to like, you know, break apart a little bit and digest, but what was your takeaway from this week's lesson? Well, How do you really, the, 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 the title is alluding to the principles of interpretation or hermeneutics. And so considering the text, considering the context, and, and uh, we're going to talk about a few of those different rules this week as we um, learn to apply some of those ways to, in the words of Paul, rightly divide the word of truth. In fact, mm -hmm. I'd like to look at that in First Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2.15. Okay. Um, of course, Paul's letter to Timothy, Timothy was a young ministerial apprentice, and so this was especially applicable to him, but to all of us as well. Second Timothy chapter two and verse 15. Bible says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth, Cameron, has to do with rightly interpreting. That's mm -hmm. what it has to do so with. So dividing here is another word for interpreting or reading. The, yes. Yeah. It, and the interesting thing, there are a couple things that jump out in this verse to me. First of all, um, he counsels, Paul counsels Timothy to do this, that he can be a worker that does not need to be ashamed. Now, if scripture was so hard to understand that nobody could really grasp it, there would be no shame in it. I mean, you, you can't figure it out, neither can anybody else. But mm. Paul implies in saying this that, that Anybody who applies himself or herself can come to a right understanding of the word, and it's our responsibility to do that. If we don't do that and come to a wrong understanding, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, especially mm -hmm. as a teacher of the gospel. So just a plain reading of this text alone, kind of you can see in that the, the idea that the Bible isn't to be only for a select few with an That's right. a high intellect or rigorous training, that he could tell young Timothy if you don't divide the word of truth correctly, yes. then there's something to be ashamed of. That's right. right. Okay. And before God, because he says, present yourself uh, proved to God. Mm. And, God and, and, and then in that context, you know, the other thing I would add is, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So this is, in order to rightly divide the word of truth, it takes personal application. Okay. You have to be diligent to do it. And God expects that diligence of us when it comes to spiritual things. Sometimes it's interesting to me how much diligence we can put into other areas of our life, mm. uh, into our careers, into sports, into any number of things, but we don't put that same diligence into knowing the word for ourselves and rightly dividing the word of truth. So that mm. counsel is given from Paul, and inherent in that is the idea that there are ways 
that you can rightly divide the word of truth. There are principles that help guide us into a correct interpretation of scripture. And that's what we're going to be looking at this week. And you bring up that point because still in that passage there, it doesn't just say uh, dividing the word of truth. It says rightly dividing. That's right. That's an adjective that it kind of implies that if there's a right way to do something, there's a wrong Absolutely. way. When Jesus would say, you've answered correctly, that <laughs> implies there's a way you could have answered incorrectly, that's right? That's right. But Paul here to Timothy is saying, yes, it's possible. So you should be ashamed if you don't do it, but it is going to take some diligence and you should do it rightly, that there's a way to do it wrong. And this week, as you, we talked about in our meeting before this, we want to walk through some of those ways that people can take, yes. average people, normal people, can still rightly divide the word of truth today. That's right. Okay. And so we're, what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at four basic rules of interpretation. Now the lesson brings up language, text, and context. I'm going to put it in different terms. And if you do any kind of reading in uh, principles of interpretation, hermeneutical principles, uh, people will use different expressions, but you're generally going to be dealing with the same basic principles. The first principle we're going to look at is considering what we call the internal context of what we're reading. The second principle is going to be considering the external context. The third principle is going to be discerning between what we call policy and principle. And then the last uh, rule that we're going to look at today is regarding the rule of ultimate uh, intention. And you'll see what that means as we go on. So we're going to look at those four aspects today, okay. rules of interpretation. All right. So instead of necessarily following the day-by-day -day outline of the, of the lesson as it was written, we drew from the lesson these principles that need to be applied if you're going to do a, a good study of God's Word and rightly divide it in any context. Well, that's right. And, and again, understand that the, the contributors to the quarterly had to divide up the lesson because of the format that it's in, <laughs> sure. but they're basically just covering the principles of interpretation it, over the different days. And because we, we're not necessarily confined to the days, we're, we can enumerate them in those four principles. Okay, now you said the first of those was the, uh, the consideration of internal context. Right. What, well, first of all, what is context? Before we say internal versus external, right. what does context mean? Well, I wrote down in our note this week from the dictionary definition that context is the parts of something that is either written or spoken that immediately precede and follow a word or passage and clarify its meaning. So if you're reading a word or a passage, what comes before it? What mm. words, what sentences, what paragraphs come before and come after uh, in fact, we would call that immediate context, which we'll go on into in a minute. Mm -hmm. But the quarterly uh, touches on this on Wednesday's lesson in the first paragraph. Okay. And so uh, let me refer to that. Words in Scripture always occur in a context. And I actually put that in brackets in Scripture because words always, always occur. If not, I mean, you could have a word out of context, but then you'd have no sense, no meaning at all. Right. It's just words. <laughs> Even I was going to say, well, maybe just a word on a sign, like I'm looking at an exit sign, but that's in a context. Yes. You know, it's in a hallway, it's near a door. So yes. words always have a context, always occur in a context. They do not stand by themselves. A word has its immediate context within a sentence. Okay. That's what we will refer to as internal context. And it is this unit that needs to be understood first. Then there is the wider context of the overall unit in which the sentence occurs, and that gets us into the external context as we're going to continue to look at. Okay, so the idea is that you could even 
you could arrest something out of context from even just the words around it in its own sentence. Yes. And we're right. And so that's the very first step is that internal context inside the text itself. Well, we're going to see some examples of that. And so, again, speaking of, well, you were actually talking about uh, yeah. how context changes. Yeah, it, it, it really does. You know, sometimes I use an illustration about punctuation, how mm -hmm. it can change the meaning of a sentence. And I'll, you know, if I have a sermon title, it's time to eat grandpa. And uh, you can change the meaning of that sentence just by adding a <laughs> comma. It's time to eat grandpa could be turned to it's time to eat grandpa if you just add a comma in there. And in the same which way- Which is if, much more preferable. Which is, I'm sure, for, especially for grandpa. Well, honestly, yeah. for everybody involved, <laughs> yeah. they'd probably rather have that. Um, but it changes the meaning just by a little punctuation when not one word is changed, right? And the same thing is true. Like if you, if you heard the sentence that he tried really, really hard and won nothing. Well, if you just drop the nothing and just say, he tried really hard and won. You're like, aha! <laughs> but then you add that one other word, oh, nothing. It takes everything. So it changes everything. Exactly, it changes everything. So making sure that the statement that you're looking at is presented in its entirety, even its own sentence context, is a good first start for understanding any passage of Scripture. That's right. So when we're looking at internal context, we're looking at, you know, the, action, the, 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 the specific sentence or phrase that we're, we're studying initially, we're looking at word meanings. We're looking at phrases, expressions. Uh, for example, there are expressions of hyperbole. You know, John, mm -hmm. uh, hyperbole is an overstatement, like when John said that uh, if, if we wrote down mm -hmm. everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough in all the room world, in all the yeah. world to contain all the books. That's probably largely true. It, it's an expression. It's an right. overexpression. And so there, there are occasions of that, even in Scripture, where if a person doesn't understand the use of hyperbole they, mm -hmm. and takes it literally, they might come away with a different meaning. So again, internal context deals with words, phrases, expressions, understanding those expressions, and then uh, overall grammatical structure surrounding paragraphs, etc. Things that are internal to the passage that are related right there to the passage that we're right. studying. Right. Again, the lesson, uh, uh, speaking about the words, the aspect of words, the lesson makes a point on Monday uh, that I want to share. In Monday's uh, lesson, the first paragraph, it says, in every language there are words that are so rich and deep in meaning that they are difficult to translate adequately within a single word into another language. Now, this is especially true of the main languages of Scripture, Hebrew and Greek. Both are very picturesque languages, and it's hard to find a single English word to convey the thought. Now, I don't know how many of our viewers may be familiar with the Amplified Bible. You're familiar with the mm -hmm. Amplified Bible, uh, which, uh, in fact, I saw an old uh, uh, little comic strip where the pastor is speaking to the congregation and he says something. He says, now we're going to wait for the guy in the Amplified Bible who's following along in the Amplified Bible <laughs> to catch up with the rest of us. Yes. And you'd get that if you understood that the, what the Amplified Bible does is, I'll take the New Testament, for example, it will take a, a word in English, so... Um, uh, uh, whosoever, John 3.16, that whosoever believeth in him or believes in him, it'll take that word believes from the Greek word pistis, and then in parentheses, it will put the fuller different words that could be taken from the Greek. So mm -hmm. I think it says to cling to, to adhere to, to rely upon. All of those ideas are expressed in the Greek, but in the English it's just believe. To the point that sometimes people say, well, all we got to do is believe. And, and we don't understand that in the, he in the Greek, mm -hmm. rather, it's not just a cognitive understanding or, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's a full trust. And right. so it's, it's, it, it's hard 
and what the lesson's bringing out is it's it's you you don't always have a word for word expression. Right. Well, even I'm thinking of like speaking of New Testament Greek, you know, you'll see how many times is the word love used in the New Testament. Yes. But there's different iterations right. of there's three um, main a, Greek a different, words you know, for love. you know, in, and so depending on which Greek they, word they were used, they meant a whole different track of <laughs> idea versus well, it just says love. And so then we put our context of love right. into there and it gets all garbled up. So we really want to know what was the author trying to convey. Right. In the in, Greek you have eros, which is erotic yeah. love, yeah. <laughs> which is very different from phileo, which is brotherly right. love. So, or the quintessential agape, agape love, which, which is, yes. you know, the ideal. Well, okay, those are all, they all have a place, <laughs> but, but they all what say is love. it, exactly, what did it mean <laughs> in that passage? And that's a really big difference, yeah. So that, you know, there's, there's an aspect of understanding the meaning of words in, in yeah. that setting. But then also, even in common usage, for example, you take the King James Version, which was, was officially uh, published in 1611. Mm-hmm. Well, there are words in the King James that we don't use the same today. When mm-hmm. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, it says in John 3 uh, that uh, the wind bloweth where it listeth. <laughs> and now here's the sound thereof, but cannot tell whither it cometh. And what did I forget exactly yeah. the, in the King James. But we don't say the wind blows where it listeth. If you read a newer translation, then like the New King James, it says the wind blows where it wishes. And so in a case like that, or in a case like the New Testament word conversation in, in the King James Version, Oh, conversation, that's when you talk to each other. No, conversation is your whole way of life. Yeah, your conduct. In 1611, it's your conduct, Mm -hmm. right? And so newer translations will say conduct. So sometimes having a parallel Bible or comparing translations can can be helpful. Um, It was the late uh, Dean Winnegar of the Andrews Seminary who said that all research begins with a dictionary. So (laughs) how do you understand the meaning of anything if you don't understand the meaning of the words within? Mm -hmm. So internal context is... First and foremost, yeah. understand what do the, the meaning. What does the word itself actually mean in this context, and how does it connect to the other words surrounding it to get that? What That's is right. the thing that the author is trying to say? That's internal context. Now, there's another the good uh, biblical example in Matthew 24, and okay. I don't recall. Perhaps we've touched on this before, but Matthew 24, verse 8. Uh, Cameron, why don't you sure. read? Yeah, let's read uh, six through eight. I think that's where. The, yes. That's a good bracket there. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now this is an example we talked about listeth in the old King James and right. the, the newer translation updates the word. But here's a case where the newer translation, the new King James does not update the word sorrows. Now sorrows is an old English word. And I can't tell you how many people I've encountered in the context of this. There's going to be wars and there's going to be uh, famines and pestilences and earthquakes. Those are kind of things that are devastating. And w- we think of sorrow, that's when you're sad. And so mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. Jesus said these are the beginning of what makes these are, people These are things sad. that make you sad, yeah. <laughs> And I've had people, well, that's not what it's saying. Mm. That word sorrows is, as I said, an old English word for birth pains. And some of the newer translations will say birth pains, but the New King James says these are the beginning of sorrows. And, and if you come to that without understanding what that word sorrows really means, right. you'll come to a different conclusion. Well, and that's where we, when we, in evangelistic series and stuff, we talk about signs of the Lord's coming. We'll use this passage and any good evangelist who's worth his salt at all will say, now those sorrows, right? That's actually meaning birth pains and they well, talk about Well, people will hear it and they say, 
Well, there've always been wars and they've always been earthquakes. Exactly. And this is, so what's the, that's not a sign. Maybe there's sadness and tragedy all throughout <laughs> history. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. But the meaning mm. here is that it's going to increase like labor pains in intensity and frequency that's as right. it gets, draws closer to the coming of the Lord. So there's a, there's a lot of meaning in that word that you would miss if you didn't understand its original intent. That's right. Okay. So you have the words themselves and then you have the surrounding sentences, paragraphs and grammatical structure that you need to take in consideration when you're reading a passage. Now I want to use one that is probably um, better known to Seventh-day Adventists. It's in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19 because uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe that the uh, distinction between the clean and unclean animals that God gave to Noah uh, still exist today and need to be followed. And there are other Christians who don't believe that, believe those don't apply anymore. And so one of the passages that can cause some confusion is in Mark chapter 7. And we're in the midst of a, um, a, a dialogue here. In fact, I want to start... Maybe in, 18 and 19 could go together. Would that help? Yeah, but I think I want to start with verse uh, 1 and get the setting. Oh, okay, go ahead. Um, well, let's go ahead in 18 and 19. We'll backtrack it. <laughs> okay. There's going to be more impact that way. Okay. Do you want to read or me? Go ahead. Okay. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not receive, uh, perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? Now, the New International Version takes it one step further in verse 19 in their, in their interpretation of it, uh, translation of it. And it says, thus he declared all foods clean. Mm. And so, you know, Ooh. I've had some of my other Christian friends say, look, I it's can't right there Jesus in the Bible. Said, plain <laughs> as day, he declared all foods clean. Now, <sighs> this is one of those situations where you, there are several things you want to consider. But in internal context, you have to ask yourself, first of all, is the, is the question at hand even having to do with clean and unclean foods? Mm. And when you read the passage, so for sake of time, we're not going to go through the whole passage, but if you read the passage, it actually has to do with a tradition of the elders of a ceremonial washing of the hands. It doesn't even have to do with the food. It has to do with the, the uncleanness and not even dirt uncleanness, but ceremonial uncleanness mm. on your hands. So the, not even the food, the the food itself, but the manner in which it was eaten and, and the, the processes you went through in preparation, right? That's what he was talking about. That's right. And in fact, before I even jump into that, if you just look at verse 19, I'm reading in the New King James, and you'll notice that in your Bible, there are certain words that are italicized. Now, most translations do this, but not all of them do. Uh, most translations do this. They will italicize words that are not a translation from the original. Now, the New International that I cited doesn't do that because the New International Version is not a word-for-word -word translation. They call it a dynamic translation. Right. So it's a phrase translation. And so you don't see um, what I'm going to bring up in a minute. But in the New King James, you see where it says, thus purifying all foods, the word thus is italicized. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it wasn't there in the original. It just said purifying all foods. And of course, the translators are trying to make a choppy sentence sound better. Right. What, the, what the New International Version did is they have the same expression, purifying all foods or Thus he declared making, all foods, all purified, making, yeah. making food clean. 
And the way they interpret it is, oh, Jesus is declaring all foods clean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, by the way, goes to the dynamic nature of the translation. That's they right. had their interpretation of it and decided that they wanted to, to, you know, that surely is what it meant and will clarify it in our rendering. Right. <laughs> but the thus he declared all foods, the thus he declared part isn't anywhere in the original. Nope. It just says making all foods clean like we see here. And if you read now around what Jesus is saying, Uh, Again, in verse 18, he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because, now he gives his reason, it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And the word eliminated actually in the Greek means it goes into the latrine. (laughs) So he's referring to the actual (laughs) gastrointestinal process. And again, the, the issue is one of the food being unclean, not, mm-hmm. not Levitically unclean, but mm-hmm. unwashed hands. Right. And look, your body, he says, is going to filter out impurities. That's what he's saying. Thus uh, purifying all foods. Right. The thing that thus purifies all foods is your intestinal system. Is that process system. <laughs> that God has built into, into us. It's so not nothing the, to do with the religious context at all. Exactly. And, and because of their concern being ceremonial defilement, Jesus was coming back with saying, you know, look, what defiles ceremonial, ceremonial defilement was spiritual defilement. Right. Food doesn't spiritually defile you. Your your unwashed hands are not going to, it's what's in your heart that spiritually, that's why he comes across with that. Yeah, that's interesting. But the passage itself, when you read in the context, just the immediate context, you can't come away with it, honestly, that Jesus was addressing clean and unclean foods. That mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the discussion. Right. So if you just read it in its context without that, you know, take on it, without that loaded expectation, That's right. it, it, it resolves that issue. You, and you, were, you referred to 1 Peter 3 and verse 3. I did. There's another example of that in the New Testament. Um, uh, speaking of the italicized words, this is an example from the Apostle yes. Peter, uh, where he's speaking about uh, the conduct and specifically the adornment of wives or women as a whole. It says here in verse 3, And I'm reading from the New King James Version here, where it says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing a gold, or putting on a fine apparel. And what I find interesting about that is when you referred to the other passage where it said thus, and and it kind of italicized, it was added for clarity, but it actually changes the meaning. Another, this is an example of that, Hugh. If you look at verse three again, do not let your adornment be, and if you took out that word merely, which is in italics, <laughs> it says, do not let your adornment be outward. Yeah. Right? So don't make adorning with these things, the arranging of hair, the wearing of gold, putting on a fine apparel, you know, but that word merely is in italics, and it was added for, quote, clarification, yeah. which actually, in the context, completely flips around what the Apostle, the Apostle Paul is trying to say, look, Christians don't do this extravagant yeah. parable and fine clothes and they don't wear gold and pearls and jewels and all this kind of stuff. And what the Bible translators did was say, well, don't merely wear those things. Yeah. Which means you do wear them, but Just don't make that the lot. only thing. Right. It's not the big deal. And when the apostle Peter here was trying to say, don't wear them because that's how you show up. So in an effort, it, and I'm not taking them to be some sort yes. of evil or some sort of conspiracy theory, but their mindset was of a certain way and as they rendered this scripture, they said, well, let's help people clarify this. And they added those italic, that italic word, and it actually changed the original intent of the author. Yes. And it's fascinating. Yes. And, and, you know, you could argue for, I can understand where they're coming from, and I can read it, it, it knowing the meaning now. Do not let it merely be outward. Sure. I, I can read. 
But like you said, there can be a tendency without knowing uh, that the merely is supplied to read into it the idea that, oh, there's not a prohibition here. Right. Well, much like the comma in Luke 23, 43 yes. that we've already mentioned, right? They didn't mean to do something wrong. They were trying to add clarification, but it demonstrated or it manifested their thinking on the topic of what state of the dead. That's and so right. they inserted that comma and it changed the meaning. Yeah. So we're looking at internal context, just the sentences, right. the word meanings, just looking carefully, reading carefully the passage mm-hmm. and, and the context of the passage, what's being talked about to, to discern what this is part of that diligently studying yes. to rightly divide. Yeah, what is the real point of the author? Now, from internal context, we move to external context. External context uh, factors in things like uh, uh, surrounding chapters, mm-hmm. uh, other passages in the scripture on the same topic. Um, Maybe and then, other writings from the same author, right. you know, comparing their own thoughts. Yeah. And then uh, time, historical settings, uh, place, cultural settings, geographical locations, and circumstances under which a thing was written. Those are things then, that's the next step in mm-hmm. rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's go back to Mark seven nineteen. thus okay. declaring all foods clean. Well, we've looked at that, and that uh, NIV translation is not very accurate. We understand better. Um, and I can make sense of the New King James, thus purifying all foods. Well, yes, the digestive process purifies all foods from, you know, defilement, whatever else. Mm-hmm. Okay. But let's say we, you know, we're wrestling with that. And it's like, well, it says he, pr- pr- he, he declared all foods clean. What do we find? Do we find that consistency throughout Scripture? Mm-hmm. When I go to other passages of Scripture, do I find that those... Um, distinctions between clean and unclean are done away. Well, yeah. Well, there's another example still in, uh, in the New Testament. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 10, uh, our viewers are likely very familiar with this. Hear this, the Apostle Peter, uh, and, and I want to be clear, this is the Apostle Peter. Obviously, we're in the book of Acts now. So this is after Christ's time with them. This is after he was the disciple Peter. This, this is, the is about Apostle three Peter. years or so after right. Pentecost. This is the post-Pentecost <laughs> Peter, right? This is the, uh, the, the converted, uh, drawn again. And yet, as we look at the experience that he has, um, I'll just very quickly read Acts chapter 10. Verse, starting with verse 9, mm-hmm. where it says, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've oh, definitely had yes. people come up and say, It's right there in black and white and red. Right. <laughs> there, Jesus himself Absolutely. says, These are no longer unclean, but clean, and don't you dare call them unclean anymore. Yes. And there, there, there it is. New Testamental, we get to eat whatever we want. Mm-hmm. But, and in this context of this vision, there's no trickery words there. That's exactly the words that were used. Yes. And that's exactly what was being conveyed in that message. But is that what the meaning of the message is, is the real question. Right. And so uh, as the story goes on, you know, as Peter, well, in fact, if you look at verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen meant. Yes. So keep that in mind. The apostle Peter didn't come out of that vision and say, well, I guess, I guess I'm eating everything now. I guess I'm, 
Yeah, and he, this didn't <laughs> happen one time. It happened three times. Three times, <laughs> and he argues with it. By the way, a point that you brought up was this is, as you said, three years after Pentecost, which tells us what was Peter's customary habit? What was his diet and lifestyle based on even he after Jesus left? anything unclean. He still wasn't eating he unclean He obviously things. didn't walk away from the Mark 7 experience. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Right. He didn't say, well, I guess it's it, swine well, from here on he out. Didn't get yeah. it he still, and this is not, well, he was confused. He didn't understand the God. This is three years after Pentecost. That's right. The Holy Spirit's been poured out, but still it's not his customary practice. Right. And of course, he, the, the passage itself answers. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that mm -hmm. I should not call any man common or unclean. Right. So the context of the passage makes it clear. And, and the point is that as we look external context throughout the New Testament, we don't ever see a place where the apostles were like, yeah, yeah, go ahead and eat whatever you want. And as much as some would want to interpret the passage that way, it just isn't the practice that we find exactly. in Scripture. Exactly. And this is, to going back to our biblical principles of interpretation, this passage in Acts chapter 10, where he sees the vision, in the immediate context, that's exactly what God was saying. Don't call these things unclean. But as you get the broader context, you start to see what he meant by that was a metaphor, was an analogy for what he had been doing with other people, the Gentiles in particular, calling them unclean and regarding them as common. And God says, don't do that. Don't call any man common or unclean. That's right. And it's interesting, Peter never did take anything out of the sheet. Right? <laughs> Not only had he never eaten anything unclean, he, st he doesn't respond. He says, okay, I guess it he just kept arguing. No, and it, well, and you see that he continues that that was his practice. That was That's New right. Testament practice. So, That's right. you know, just reading in other passages on the same topic give us more uh, light on a topic. Exactly. So, uh, part of external context is other passages and considering uh, that. Mm -hmm. Part of the consideration that needs to come is considering the time, place, and circumstances that a statement or uh, something is given in. For example, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 35. Uh, verse 3, and I'm going to refer to it here. Um, uh, you'll see the text on the screen, but basically the Bible says that you shall not kindle, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwellings on the mm -hmm. Sabbath day. So um, here's a prohibition of the Lord not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. But there's an interesting statement in the book Patriarchs and Prophets where Ellen White comments on this uh, uh, prohibition. Uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 408, it says... During the sojourn in the wilderness, the kindling of fires upon the seventh day had been strictly prohibited. The prohibition was not to extend to the land of Canaan, where the severity of the climate would often render fires a necessity. But in the wilderness, fire was not needed for warmth. Mm. And so here's a, here's a situation where there is a, 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 a rule, a, something God has applied a prohibition. He's applied to a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. But as time and place change, the prohibition doesn't apply in another place. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. She says it had been strictly prohibited, but then when they got to the land of Canaan, it was not. And so what made the difference was not that God had changed his idea about there being a Sabbath. Right. He hadn't changed the principle of rest. And we're going to get into principles versus policies. But you know, if they were to strictly adhere to that same prohibition in the land of Canaan, it would have been very detrimental to their, perhaps even their very lives. That's right. Right. And so there was time and place had to be considered in the spirit of what God was trying to convey with that prohibition. That's right. And any time, it's just a, a, a main and basic 
fundamental rule of interpretation. You've got to consider the time, place, and circumstances. Now, our viewers might be thinking, and some people will say, well, you know, that just, how do you know? You're going to yeah. take, you know, times have changed. Well, yeah, everything has changed. Exactly. From Bible it's been 2,000 years, right? You could say that about almost any passage, especially the Old Testament, even the New Testament. Now, you could say, well, I mean, that was then. That's how their society was. But now we see, now we do, now we right. know. How do you sift out well, this between leads policy us, and principle? That's exactly it. This leads us into how important this next rule of interpretation is, and that's discerning the difference between policy and principle. A policy is like a rule, it's yeah. like a statement of, you know, a specific what action, do or don't do this, yeah. Um, the principle is the reason behind the rule. Every good policy has a good principle behind it. Mm -hmm. And there's an old uh, uh, saying that says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, this is exactly what it's referring to. You know, you take the baby, the baby's dirty, you put him in the bathwater, now the water's dirty. And when the water's dirty, you're going to throw it out. Well, you're going to take the clean baby out of the water. <laughs> you're not going to throw him out with the water. Well, who would think to do that? But the challenge is when it comes to, for example, biblical policies. Uh, for example, this rule on uh, not kindling a fire on the Sabbath. There's a reason God gave that rule, and there's a good reason. And if you just say, ah, oh, times have changed, it's not important, we can do anything on the Sabbath, you're going to lose and miss out on the, mm -hmm. the important principle that God was trying to teach. Right. And so it is with any good uh, uh, policy when times change, it's important to be able to discern the principle underneath it and reapply it to modern times. Well, and specifically, their time didn't change so much from the wilderness to Canaan, but their circumstance certainly did. Exactly. Right, so when they were in the warmth of the desert, you would only have a fire for maybe social gatherings. It wasn't yeah. essential. It wasn't a necessary vital life-giving thing. Right. And you would actually become a distraction to the Sabbath. You would be working on the Sabbath, be completely unnecessary. However, in the land of Canaan, when the, you know, it gets colder and you need to cook your food, you do different things. It's, a, it's an essential part of life, right? And so the Lord adapted not the principle, but he adapted the policy to actually highlight the best way to keep Sabbath in both circumstances. That's right. Yeah. You know, an excellent New Testament example, and to this day, one I even hear from, from people in the church, they're like, I don't know what to do with this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul talks about how important it is for a woman to keep her head covered. Mm. And uh, we're going to go and look at that, a portion of it anyway, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 4. The Bible says, Every man praying or prophesying, have his, his, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head anyway. You, you know, I'm not going to, like I said, go mm -hmm. through the whole passage. But people have come away with this and said, well, is this a biblical mandate that women always should have some kind of head, yeah. you know, head wrap, bonnet, yeah, something some sort of cloth, to something. cover yeah. their, their hair? Yeah. And I've, I've met some very sincere Christians who are like, I want to be faithful. I want to follow the Lord. I don't know what to make of this passage. Hmm. So this is an, an example of, I believe, a perfect example of a change of time and place. And I think we draw it from, let's take the internal context. From the Look text at the passage itself. itself. Right. There's a few things in here. First of all, if you look at verse um, 2, the apostle says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered 
them to you. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about traditions. They're not all bad. It's not a bad thing. And Paul right. had traditions he gave to the church. He gives some of the reasoning for that as we continue on. Um, he says in verse uh, 13, uh, notice now, he says, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, the implication, even in what he's saying there, is he's talking about what's proper, and he's talking about something that is evident mm -hmm. to his audience that they can about discern. what's proper. Yeah. In other words, he, he doesn't have to, he's like, look, you judge for yourselves. And it, and it appears fairly plain here that in this time and place, it was a customary sign of respect mm -hmm. that a woman would, would have her head covered in such and such a way. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, he doesn't outline that. We were talking yeah. about that earlier. And he doesn't prescribe the dimensions or the, even the nature of this covering. It seems to imply that the woman's hair is that covering. And the man's, you know, so there's a difference between, um, that, there's clearly a distinction between male and female in this passage. And he wants to make sure that is kept. And it looks like in the society of that time, one of those ways to distinguish this was this head covering yes. notion. right? And it was, it was understood by his... Audience. Right, it was judged, it, so they could just look at it, and it, he called it a tradition it, that you can judge between yourselves. And, and it was something that they obviously would judge the same as he does. Look, judge for yourselves. He was confident they'd say, oh yeah, it's inappropriate. Yeah. So this was, a, and incidentally, this was not a Jewish church. Interesting. This was yeah. the, the Church of Corinth. This is a, 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 a mecca, a multiplex of people coming yeah, in and going from all over. This is once the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, right? So this is, yeah. But you've got Gentiles from all over. This right. is a thoroughfare of travel, and so people... Uh, so in other words, a largely Gentile audience, and even to them in this particular setting, cultural setting, it was not, it was a, a something that was deemed as a, an honorable behavior that should right. be carried on of all places in the church. And another area, one other thing that he says that, that gives us that um, understanding is in verse 16. He says, but if anyone seems to be contentious we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now this, the reading here is, is a little bit more, I, I like the New American Standard, which says this, we have no other practice. In other words, if anybody wants to argue this, we don't have any other practice we abide by, nor do any of the churches. In other words, you all know that this is how we conduct ourselves in church. There's no option B, option C. This is how we do it. And this is how all the churches do it because we understand that this is an important mm -hmm. way to carry yourself in this particular culture. Right. Now, coming away from that, we know that in at least where we are now in North America, uh, it is not important for a woman to wear some kind of covering on her head as a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about one of the things that in time past has been is the tie for the men. And even where we are today in our, you know, it used to be that a man would always wear a tie as a sign of respect. And that's where we've gotten into that practice. Because uh, mm -hmm. you talked about Peter and adorning, because that's adornment. Right. And how many times have you heard, aha, that this is the man's necklace right here. This, yeah. this, is, the, this is a, we shouldn't be wearing, it's wrong to wear them. But, but then I hear other people say it's wrong not to wear them. You know what? But the reason we got into the practice was it was a sign of respect. And I think that it's fading, fast fading, <laughs> which I'm happy for <laughs> in, in our society. But it's, it, that's why we, you know, and then in some countries, it's the exact opposite. We right. were in South America. Mm -hmm. They, they, they don't wear ties. They have linen shirts. Nice right. Linen and shirt. you think of like India, the Philippines, a lot of those places are more equatorial. They yes. won't have like, 
you know, t typically, I mean, we're getting the nuts and bolts of, you know, dress and whatnot, but, you know, in the North American context, men, especially here in Michigan in the wintertime, you'll yes. layer, right? So you'll have the undershirt, you'll have the button-up shirt, you'll have the tie, you'll have the jacket, you have, <laughs> but, in, and I've seen, you go to places, say, be in, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa or something like that, you try to wear the three-piece suit and you're not going to make it through the day, right? And, but there's a reason those cultures have still honorable, respectful, um, uh, traditional garb That's right. that might be made of lighter materials, thinner materials, more loose garments and whatnot. And it's not um, that they're trying to be more casual and disrespectful of God, but they're just That's taking right. into consideration their circumstances as well, time and place. And we've right? talked about in some countries, it would be disrespectful to wear shoes in the house of God. Sure. But in, in our country, it would be the opposite. It would be disrespectful to go barefoot into the house. You know, so yeah. it's... It, th these are things where what we, I, I, I believe from a reading through of the passage, it becomes plain that Paul's point is to conduct yourself in the house of God in a way that shows respect for God, for one another, mm -hmm. and propriety of conduct in public. Mm -hmm. And that's the principle underlying the policy. Right. And I don't think today that that policy of covering the head, unless it happened to be the hair or whatever, but even the long hair, short hair, and we talked about that, that the, the principle is that a Christian ought to conduct himself or herself, especially in the house of God, in a way that commends itself yes. to other worshipers. And so God forbid you would lose that principle if you threw out the policy. Right. Like times have changed, baby with the bathwater, right? right? No, let's identify the principle and realize times have changed, but reapply it today and make sure that when we come to the house of God, we appear. And it's interesting, in, in Ellen White's counsel, she talks about people... Everyone should have a special outfit of clothes for the Sabbath. Mm. She doesn't say a suit. She doesn't say suit and tie, whatever, mm. but just something that is set aside as a, as a special, unique. Mm -hmm. it's, my, it's for my Sabbath out right. attire. But th that's carrying that idea with just... Right. Well, I mean, I did years of work in Adventist academies. And I can tell you the difficulty of having dress code policies without articulating dress code principles. Yes. Right. And so you try to outline, well, you can wear a tie at this time, but a shirt at this time and this and this. And they're like, why? Right. Would, and if we just make an arbitrary list of rules, today's, of course, you're going to get frustrations. But the goal is, and I think this moves into our final point here, yes. is that the, the intention of our heart should be, what is the principle God is conveying and how can I best manifest that in my life so that I bring honor to him and draw people to his to following his laws. Yeah, so let's bring it back to that. We, we're, we're looking at, and I know we're kind of crashing through this, and we have some lessons coming up. Well, you'll see these applied a little bit more, mm -hmm. but it's still looking at these basic principles, internal context, external context. We looked at knowing the difference between policy and principle. But even if, if you're watching, you're thinking, well, some of that is more complex, and, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't know if I'm getting it as clear as I should. This last principle... I think trumps every other one. And it is the knowing, and uh, uh, what is it? The rule of ultimate intention. What is your ultimate intention in studying the word? Mm. If your ultimate intention is not to understand the word so you can follow the will of God in your life, Mm. You're not going to come to an understanding, no matter how well you consider no, internal clear the context, text is, external exactly. context. But, yeah. And here's some passages for that. Now, we're not going to look up 1 Corinthians 2. We've referred to this before, where mm -hmm. the Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually understood, spiritually discerned. That is, only the Holy Spirit can unlock the meaning mm -hmm. of Scripture. And the, and the smartest guy in the world is not going to understand the meaning of Scripture if the Holy Spirit does not unlock that meaning right. for him. But another one is John 7, 17. 
uh, in the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at two here from the words of Jesus. Um, not that we've talked about this before, that the whole scripture is words all of the words of Jesus. Right. But as Jesus was on this earth, he said right. on John in John 7, verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, speaking capital H of God the Father, if anybody wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, the word doctrine means teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Hmm. In other words, Jesus says, if you really want to understand God's will, you have to be willing to do his will. But if you're willing to do his will, he's very clear, you shall know. Hmm. And hmm. another text that goes with that and were you going to go there? Well, yeah, John chapter 8, I believe mm -hmm. it was, right? This very next door, right next door, Jesus again speaks on this same idea of knowing the truth. And he says, verses 31 and 32. Well, read verse 32 first. Everybody loves verse 32. Okay. This is the classic, right? And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that's encouraging. Amen. We hear it a lot. And you want, hey, look, you'll know the truth. Jesus said, but there is a condition on that. And which is found in verse 31. Then Jesus answered to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's right. So that truth shall make you free. Knowing the truth and it's setting you free is in the context of abiding by, that, by his word, like That's living right. according abiding to it. Abiding his word is living according to the word of God, being willing to do that. And, it, and this is saying the same thing as John 17, 17. And this is the rule of ultimate intention. If your ultimate intention is to know the will of God so that you can follow the will of God, you will know it. Mm. The Lord will not leave. You shall know the truth. Jesus mm -hmm. promises if that condition is met. And so all of those other things we talked about, they're all important and they will help you and you become more proficient in your study of the word. But if you don't have that ultimate intention of following the word, mm -hmm. you're never going to know the truth. Mm -hmm. There are a couple powerful statements uh, that uh, I put in our notes here from um, the pen of Ellen White. She says in Third Selected Messages, page 82, and this was speaking of her writings, it seems impossible for me to be understood by those who have had the light but have not walked in it. Mm. So that's that same principle we're seeing. She says the people who don't walk in the light, they just don't seem to get it. Mm. It's all it's fuzzy to them, but mm. the people who walk in the light, they get it. Mm. And that goes well with the next one from uh, General Conference Daily Bulletin, April 3, 1901 where she says, truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. Mm. Truth is only truth to you when you live it in the daily life. Mercy. I was just thinking of the passage, and we're not going to take time to look it up now, but the Bible repeatedly comes back to this theme, like the real hindrance between knowing the scripture and not knowing it is not language barrier. It's not time and circumstance. It's the condition of the heart. Do you actually want to know the will of God and are willing to do it if it were clear? Right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm hoping our viewers are like, you've brought that up before. Yes, yep. we have. <laughs> and you're it probably going to hear it again. Because the whole lesson, the whole quarter this time is about how to interpret scripture. And that most essential core principle is, do you That's even right. want to know what it says? Are you just looking for debate? Are you looking for argument? Or do you want to live according to what you see? Do you want to follow Christ. Amen. And uh, I want to finish with a statement from the Review and Herald, May 1, 1913. It says, those who are Christ's disciples will take the work where he left it and carry it forward in his name. They will copy the words, the spirit, the practices of none but him. Their eye is upon the captain of their salvation. His will is their law. And as they advance, they catch more and clearer views of his countenance, of his character, of his glory. They do not cling to self, 
but hold fast his word, which is spirit and life. And then she quotes, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And now notice how she finishes this. They reduce their knowledge of his will to practice. They hear and do the things that Jesus teaches. Oh, I like that phrase, they reduce it. So you have all this broad knowledge and wisdom that you've gained from studying, but you boil it down. You reduce right. it to filter it down to what? To practice. My purpose is to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus in words and actions and thoughts. Amen. So um, I want to leave with our readers, you know, all that we're talking about will do no good to the person who does not study the word. Mercy. <laughs> we're talking about all these principles, but you got to open the book <laughs> to get there. And I want to give you a few helpful tips when you study. Maybe you've wrestled with getting things out of Scripture. And I'm going to tell you that if you apply yourself, sometimes, and I'm going to say even as a pastor, sometimes I've got to plow through and I just, there are days I get more out of things that I read than others. But here are some three, three helpful questions to ask when you're reading. The first question is what? When you read a passage, ask yourself the question, what, what is it saying? You know, and this is considering the words and, mm -hmm. you know, like we talked about Jesus, what is he addressing with uh, the wine-washed hands? And, you know, what's it saying? Once you've ascertained that, the follow-up question is, so what? That means, what does it have to do with me? Okay, I kind of see what the passage is saying, but how does that fit me today living during the COVID crisis in 2020? Right. You know, so what? What does it have to do with me? I'm going to tell you the Holy Spirit will help you understand so what? You know, what it has to do with you. And then the final question is now what? What are you going to do with it? And friends, I want to encourage you. Don't be, don't be like those who just even study the Bible for bragging rights or mm. some kind of self-elation or head knowledge. Be among those who want to follow this, want to know the scripture in order to follow the scripture to be like Jesus. Mm. And Give yourself over to following the will of the Lord and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us your word. You could have sat back and just set this universe into motion. We would have groped in the dark with no hope of ever knowing or finding you, but you revealed yourself in your son Jesus, in the creative world around us and in this written word. Lord, help us to know what your word says. But more than just a head knowledge of understanding and correct doctrinal framework, Lord, we want to, as Mrs. White said, reduce it down to practice. Help us to actually do what we see in your word. And by your grace, as we do that, help us to become more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.